Welcome to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. First off, happy holidays to all of our listeners. We appreciate you spending some of your time with us. And I don't know about you, but this year has been confusing. There were flashes of what felt like the old, unmasked world re-emerging. And then, once again, those blunt reminders that we are still in a pandemic. For many of us, me included, life got busier. Back to work, back to more social activities, back to familiar rituals of being on the go. And while I'm certainly happier being less cooped up in my house, there's the question of what we lose as the busyness seeps back in. My guest this week, Josh Cohen, would call this the difference between doing versus being, scrambling versus silence, running versus ambling. Cohen is a psychotherapist, professor of literary theory at the University of London, and author most recently of Not Working, Why We Have to Stop. He says that our great poets like Emily Dickinson, philosophers like Rousseau, and even Buddhist monks are reminders of why we need to seek out a different way of being. One where we're less interested in productivity and more concerned with creative contemplation. Well, Josh Cohen, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you so much. Burnout is 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 on so many of our minds right now, and uh, I wonder from somebody who works in the therapy space, who works in the literary space, how you begin to think about this question of burnout. Yes, the two overlap in my mind so much. Um, I think because both literature and the consulting room have been very rich spaces in which to explore a human impulse, which I think has gradually been sort of banished to the peripheries of mainstream culture. And that is the impulse to stop, to be inactive, Mm. to refuse that imperative to productivity, to purposefulness. Um, I guess in the most basic philosophical um, language, you could say, to be rather than to do. And of course, to do has become so intertwined with our modern identities. It's it's kind of who we are at this point. And I, I hear you kind of questioning that a bit. Yeah, that's part of the purpose of the book. And, and what I find myself thinking about all the time um, when I think both about, well, what the function of, of literature and art more generally is and the function of psychotherapy, I think they both give us ways in which to withdraw from this compulsory, um, uh, sort of tacitly coerced um, activity. Um, that sense that we're not really doing anything if we're not doing something, you know, that there isn't a space available to us psychically or culturally to think that not doing is nonetheless more than nothing. And for you, what's the power of, of not doing, of, of, of inactivity in the kind of economic sense? I think most importantly that it shifts the focus of the mind it almost shifts a kind of internal angle of vision we are so focused in a in an active culture on the external world 
on what we can see in front of us in the various distractions that are put in front of us um, in our hands, in our living rooms, um, on the streets, um, in our workplaces, and to, to shift the angle of vision, sort of, if you like, to, you know, reverse the camera into selfie mode and actually look inside. That, I think, is the real value of inactivity. It just allows for a kind of contact with the inner life. Mm. You reference some some incredible writers and thinkers in your work and in your book, and I, I wonder how they factor into this conversation. What do we glean from them? Well, I guess um, sort of presiding over all of them is this figure of, of Sigmund Freud, who in a way is an ambiguous figure because Freud, of course, was famously workaholic. You know, he worked six-hour days, he saw 10 patients a day, and he still managed to produce an almost... Um, unimaginable uh, range of, of, of uh, sort of literary and theoretical work. So <clears throat> what is it that he has to say to this topic? He doesn't seem biographically somebody who's very suited to it. Um, and yet I think he was interested from the beginning in what he sometimes called psychic inertia. He saw that the human mind could be pulled both towards uh, an expansiveness, an involvement in the external world. And he gave different names to that impulse at various times um, in his life. But also that there was a pull inward um, and a pull to sort of a resting in the self. Sometimes he actually, you know, at one point he would call this narcissism. At another point he would call it the death drive. And at another point still, he would call it psychic inertia. But he was always alive to the fact that there was a, a kind of ongoing conflict going on in the human psyche um, between the impulse to desire, to expand, to consume more of the world and the impulse to stop and to sort of put an end to desire, to, to have uh, enjoy a kind of equilibrium um that that sort of stopped the 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 mood of of constant agitation and there's something in in the space that comes um that that is can be deeply creative there's creativity in the inactivity in many ways isn't that true yeah oscar wilde um is the the guy who says to do nothing is the most difficult thing in the world and of course, Wilde is famous for these paradoxical inversions of received wisdom. Um, but <clears throat> he really wants us to take seriously the idea that resting the mind, that creating within oneself a state of attentive contemplation where you resist the impulse to action is, is really the basis for not only a sort of more peaceable, more aesthetically pleasing state of mind and a, and a sort of creative um, orientation, but actually I think he sort of sees it as the basis for a kind of more equitable social settlement, that there is something, in other words, about the rivalrous impulse to do, um, the way that doing engenders a kind of angrily competitive social environment 
that mm. that while says militates sort of against individual self realize creative self realization as well as against just peaceful congenial relations between human beings you know as you're talking i i think almost of what are some of the almost archetypal examples of those that have dropped out in a sense from uh from the world of of traditional work and how often they've been creatives writers but also ascetics or spiritual seekers or uh, people that go into monasticism i have you thought about that as well they they always serve as an interesting counterpoint to the world of busyness yes uh for sure both um the sort of those who after a lifetime of wrangling have achieved that state of of spiritual wisdom but also you know there are cases if you like of failed monasticism um in in french literature the great example is the figure of des Essences in the cult novel by uh by jk wiesmans um uh which is translated usually as uh against the grain or against nature sometimes um a in french and um des Essences, um has lived this very dissolute life of um, opiate intoxication and sexual excess. And he decides that he's going to retreat to his aristocratic family's villa on the outskirts of Paris. And he um, uh, starts to try to find the kind of life that will result in a kind of permanent internal peace. And in a series of uh, really grimly comic vignettes, everything he does has the opposite effect and sort of sends him into a state of of frenzied agitation or um, uh, sort of heartsick melancholy. Um, His attempt to find inner peace always sort of gets hoist on its own petard it's 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 um both tragic and very funny um mm. uh and then there is um uh, a very rich literature of retreat and um of solitude which runs from medieval japan right into the romantic period um so we can invoke uh, the Buddhist monk Chumay, um, who writes this extraordinary um, memoir, brief memoir, a sort of a seventh-century Buddhist monk, um, and he writes a memoir of his retreat into the uh, mountains with just a tent and the the basic means of self-sufficiency and survival, and. What he says, there's a neat twist at the end of the memoir where after extolling the virtues of solitude and peace, he says, I realise I've got myself into an unintended sort of loop of desire because I enjoy this state of solitude too much. I'm too attached to it. I'm too invested in it. And in a way, I've defeated my own spiritual mission it's a victim of its own success and i actually think he anticipates one of the great themes of the quest for peace 
which is that as soon as you find it, it almost has to be disturbed by something. You know, you, you find a, a similar instance in Rousseau in his famous um, uh, solitary walks, um, ramblings of a, of a solitary, where he sort of describes this idyll, afternoon idyll in a rowboat in, in Lac Bien. And he's experiences this sort of perfect dissociation from the world, a kind of voyage into himself. Um, and it's a kind of unadulterated bliss for as long as it lasts. But the problem, of course, again, is that he has to wake up. He has to row back to shore. And it's it's a kind of predicament that, you know, there isn't really for the human being a state of uh, sustainable peace. Yeah, that's, I think, a really, a really poignant and profound thought that we seek this this perfect place or state of equanimity, and just as we have it, it seems to be gone, or new desires come upon us. And and one, I think, it it almost returns to what you said in the beginning, which is this tension between doing and being, and how we seem to be toggling back and forth between the two, and perhaps they're both necessary for some sense of balance in a rich life. Yes. And I think that the balance has to do with purpose. Purpose is, of course, a very important dimension of human existence. Um, it provides a, a, a sense of substantial identity, of meaning, of one's place in the world. But if it's allowed to dominate at the expense of purposelessness, then I think it becomes tyrannical. And what what kind of toggling back to being does is it allows us to discover a more purposeless dimension of human existence. Um, there is a lot of activity in the mind, of course, that occurs at least seemingly without purpose. We all know it from the internal dialogue that runs in our head as we walk down the street or as we stare out the window. And it's not that those inner dialogues don't happen anymore in a culture of distraction and permanent activity. But the problem is more that we cease to be really curious about it. We, we hear it as a sort of internal background noise um, that, you know, more often than not, we try to shut out so that we can concentrate our minds on the task at hand, on, you know, answering that email or doing that exercise class or whatever it is that that the world tells us we have to do at this moment. I think it is important occasionally to let yourself be curious about that hum in the back of your mind. What do you think that 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 hum or that impulse is? Where do you think it where do you think it comes from in the human psyche? I have a feeling that there's something very sort of ancient or primal about it. And I, I suppose some of the evidence for this is going to be found in ancient cultures. If you look at almost any system of mythology, any system of theogony, you know, any order of the gods, there is always some representation, whether it's a mythological figure or some natural force or a combination of the two, that represents inactivity and that sees 
a kind of inertial or inactive state as in some way the cradle of the universe and that a kind of shapely purposeful universe can only emerge from one that is kind of inactive or inertial or, or, or you know governed by a kind of sleep or, or even a deathliness. So if, if we sort of translate that into secular terms then I think it, it's about a, a permanent dialectic between life and, uh, and non-life or activity and inactivity in us. I, I think inactivity is something that the human being at the beginning really has to be coaxed out of. And in developmental terms, I think it may have a lot to do with the experience of uh, the womb, with the fact that um, our prehistory, um, our formation is in a place which is as close as possible, really, to a, a kind of an environment of total equanimity. And when we're made to leave that perfectly confined space and we feel the coldness and the agitations of the outside world on our skin, we, we cry and we scream in protest because, um, in a sense, we, we then have to start working. We don't have our needs served um, by our environment in an immediate way. We're going to have to fight to get fed, to get warm. And this will begin really from the beginnings of life in one way, and it will continue throughout. And I think that that yearning for a kind of perfect merger with the space around us, that means that we never really have to fight for survival. I, I think that's just a dimension of the human being. And we feel it when we sort of sink into the sofa and stare out the window. There's, there's, there's something very modern about that image, of course, because we're all tired from overwork. But there is also, I think, something very ancient about it. How do you see this play out as your work as a psychoanalyst, particularly over the last year and a half of being in that close, um, unified space with a patient or client and the, the ideas that, that emerge off of the sofa and in, in between the two of you? Well, one of the interesting and difficult things for, for psychotherapists um, uh, on both sides of the couch um, for the last year and a half is that most of us have spent most of the time working on, on you know, uh, a remote platform. And um, at the beginning, I remember there was a sort of an almost therapeutic euphoria that, that accompanied the, the first weeks of lockdown that I think made its way into the consulting room. People were talking about, you know, uh, this was a, a sort of, in a way, there was a window when workspaces were moving online and employees, in a way, had a little bit of, of gardening leave while that happened, right? They, they couldn't do very much. And there was a sense that a kind of expanse of time and space and communion with friends and loved ones, you know, one's most, well, one's bubble, I guess, um, became possible. 
and and people were were extolling the virtues of it for a long time and even when they did have to start getting back into work adapt uh, adapt their work to online culture they were enjoying being at home they they felt sort of enclosed and they were enjoying the 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 reduced traffic in the streets um the heightened senses of of smell um and of of taste in some cases um and then as time went on um it's very interesting how people started complaining in the consulting room about a morphing of this peaceful space of enclosure into something quite other so where at the beginning people would say it's wonderful i don't need to take a journey to come see you in the consulting room anymore i just switch on my computer and there you are well that turned into i really feel the loss of the journey because the journey is that passage where i switch out from a very external work related or family related mode into myself and i i realize that i used the walk from the station or the drive in the car or the walk down the road i used it to talk to myself and and that was my way into talking to you and now i have this kind of very rude abrupt switch out from a work meeting on zoom to a session with you and it's like i can hardly tell the difference so the the it, it's a bit like the stories we were talking about before you know desesant or 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 chame you know these these characters who who somehow managed to find agitation in the course of trying to find peace this happened to a lot of us i think that 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 we found a kind of peace in the enclosure of lockdown which quickly turned into agitations of various kinds um but work was definitely one of them because from feeling that you know that there weren't the sort of um that 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 there wasn't the monitoring and the coercions of office life there was now the sense that well you don't have any of these transitional spaces between home and work that allow you to separate them and and work just became one and home just became one big office and it became very very difficult for people to switch off at that point that the presence of family um of of young children in particular went from being a, a kind of a, an opportunity to enjoy one another to be you know more intensely in the presence of and available to one another um to to a state where there was sort of you know an encumbrance uh, uh, an intrusion uh, and people felt you know pulled impossibly between obligations to work and obligations to home and they found it impossible to find that that space of equanimity that we've been talking about you know um that 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 was the story i think of 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 how the 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 pandemic and lockdown sort of shifted from being a space of retreat and and rediscovery of the inner life to one where the the opposite seemed to happen where all the intrusions of the external world became amplified at a certain point if you're just joining us my guest this week is Josh Cohen he's a psychoanalyst and professor of literary theory 
And we'll have part two of our conversation after this short break. You're listening to Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll now continue with part two of my conversation with Josh Cohen, psychoanalyst and professor of literary theory. For those that have felt so wildly burned out over the last year, although for I think for many people, the more we talk about burn it, burnout, um, it's as if they realize they've been in an abusive relationship for a decade or plus now, which is interesting in how this idea of burnout is almost contagious. Once you start talking about it, the reality begins to spread among those in your circle. What do you tell those that are in that situation and are looking to cultivate a new space that I know you're talking about here and that others are talking about? What, what for you goes into that? One of the things that happens specifically in psychotherapy, and of course I'm not, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not just speaking to people who are doing psychotherapy or, or that you would need to do psychotherapy in order to uh, find a way out of, of a burnt out state. But I would try to draw attention to the purposeless, associative state of mind that people really need to be in to do a psychotherapy session. Mm. They, I mean, very soon, once you, once you get into the rhythm of psychotherapy, you stop coming with an agenda, with, with, with the idea that you have something to talk about. The idea really is to just unleash your mind and, and see where it wants to go. And sometimes it's, it's sort of inexorably clear where it wants to go. And there, there are these moments of quite intense emotional contact and of insight. And sometimes it, it's not quite clear where it wants to go. And you have a session which maybe seems aimless in isolation, but becomes meaningful later on in relation to another session where what you were going on about and didn't quite understand two days ago or two weeks ago or two months ago suddenly comes to light. This is a kind of nonlinear, digressive, aimless style of thinking that I think we can try to do more of in our everyday lives. Um, if you think about the ways that we walk in the modern city or the occasions on which we walk, we walk too often with a purpose to go down to the shops, to go down to the station, or even to do something called getting some exercise, which often involves a kind of pre-planned route um, and a certain kind of disciplined rhythm. Um, but the aimless kind of ambling um, that allows you to wander here and there, to get a little bit lost, um, not necessarily externally lost, but lost in yourself, in your own train of thought. That's something that can happen on a literal walk 
or it can be a kind of a mental walk that happens while you're on the sofa. But I think what is important is to cultivate a certain level of aimlessness in life, a kind of healthy aimlessness, and to try and infuse different kinds of daily activity with that spirit of aimlessness. We spend too much, I think, of our human interactions, again, sort of, you know, adapted to a particular purpose. Um, when we meet people so often these days, it's to talk about something, um, to get something done or to, to clarify something. Um, even, I think, when, when it comes to meeting our friends, I think I, I, I speak to more and more people, both inside and outside the consulting room, who say they don't have time to really enjoy free-flowing, open-ended conversation, the kind where you don't know what's on the agenda, you don't know where the two or the three or the six of you are really going. There are many different ways, if you like, in which you can bring that spirit of easy aimlessness into sort of into everyday activity. And I think you, you have to start seeing it as a human need rather than as a kind of superfluous indulgence. You've talked about a few fascinating other literary figures that I, I, I just need to ask you about. Emily Dickinson and, and David Foster Wallace, two of my favorite. I, I wonder what wisdom they would share on this topic. Well, um, Dickinson uh, is, is my, I think, I, I'd have to sort of put my head on the block and say she is my favorite poet. And, of course, she sort of apparently renounces worldly life um, to lock the door on her bedroom in Am Amherst and sit at a small round table and scratch out, you know, 1,700 poems. Um, and what those poems cumulatively show us is that somebody who seems to live the most radically ascetic, inactive life, who goes almost nowhere, who sees almost nobody, who has this very constricted range of contact, not no contact, because she does have a, a number of intimates in the course of her life, but it's incredibly restricted in terms of both time and, and, and numbers. But <clears throat> what she shows us in her poetry is that that renunciation of the external world is also a massive gain in the imaginative world. That what is remarkable about Dickinson is that she can travel to so many regions of the mind and particularly to its unexplored outer edges, including states of inertia and inactivity, which she wrote about so incredibly compellingly, um, ventriloquizing the monologues of, of the dying um, or of, you know, erotic transport. Um, that there are so many ways in which she takes us with this remarkable lyrical 
um, luminosity into um, these very dark regions of our private lives and, and, and shows them to us like I think nobody has done before or since. So, um, you know, you were talking earlier about how um, inactivity, paradoxically, can become a place of creativity and and somewhere in which we can sort of range about and explore very adventurously. And I think no one captures that more than, than Dickinson. Are there any poems or, or words of Dickinson that come to mind that have stuck with you over the years? Here is uh, a poem that describes a rather frightening moment, a moment of despair. She has a poem, it's poem number 305, because all her poems are numbers, and it consists of two quatrains, and the first, what she's really trying to do is, is, is ask the difference between despair and fear. And fear, she says, is the feeling that accompanies the instant of a wreck, a shipwreck, for example, whereas despair is the moment after. It's the moment the wreck has been. And the instant of a wreck, we are agitated and frightened and sort of, um, you know, in this neurasthenic state, our, our nerves are on end. And then this is her description of the moment of despair. The mind is smooth, no motion, contented as the eye upon the forehead of a bust that knows it cannot see. And if you listen to those lines, they're so remarkable because they ascribe a kind of consciousness to the total unconsciousness of an inanimate object, right? This is a, a bust that is in, in marble, we imagine, or, or bronze. And its mind is not dead, it's smooth, it's motionless, and it's contented. And again, I think she's tapping into something very primal there. The idea that there is a, a kind of an ideal of total inactivity that we imagine as a kind of contentment. Of course, there is no there is no real state of mind in a bust. But when we think ourselves into the bust, we see it as a state of contentment, a state of smoothness. And this wonderful line that knows it cannot see. Um, it's, it, it, in a way, it's sort of beautifully preposterous, like a lot of Dickinson's poetry. It's so outrageously bold um, to, to sort of personify a bust. And at the same time, it's still a bust. You know, it's both alive and it's dead. It knows it cannot see. You know, it's it's a sort of, it's, it's dead, but it knows about its own deadness. And um, uh, I think nobody wrote about these edge states as, as, as boldly as she did. Yeah. Well, from Emily Dickinson, I... I, I want to ask also about one of my favorite writers, David Foster Wallace. What what is his contribution to this this, this set of themes that we're exploring together? Well, um, biographically, 
he's um, actually a more tragic case than Dickinson, who I think found genuine richness and contentment, even if it was complicated, in solitude. Foster Wallace, in a way, is the is is the exemplary case of a man who looked for a, a, a peaceable contentment and again and again found um, uh, an enervated agitation. And he too, of course, in all his writing, was fascinated by what we might call inertial states and his epic work, whether it's his, his greatest is, um, is definitely, it's a matter of debate, but um, he, he, he wrote um, Infinite Jest, um, sure. which is his, you know, um, many more than thousand page, um, many more than a million word epic. Um, and at its center is this conceit of an underground film um, that induces a state of catatonic bliss that eventually reduces the viewer to a kind of quivering, well, uh, you know, something like that, that, that marble, that contented marble bust, um, except a little more undignified because, you know, your tongue is lolling out of your mouth and, and, and you're kind of dribbling. He, he, I think, showed us a world of frenetic activity, which in some ways was sort of mimicked by his style of writing, which was incredibly sort of expansive, multi-clausal, sometimes exhausting. You have to work hard to follow um, a, a Foster Wallace sentence. And yet he was always on a trajectory towards a state of silence, uh, of non-being. This was sort of, you know, the, 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 the silence that kind of lurked inside the very noisy spaces of the world. That to me is what so much of his writing was about. Um, and he was, you know, in life, very tormented by um, his difficulty in, in sort of staying on an even keel mentally. Yeah, a, a good description of him. And it, it, it brings to, to mind some of these questions, whether it's about Dickinson or Foster Wallace, whose life ended very tragically. Can one fall into too deep of a state of being or of existential questioning or of inactivity? When does the pursuit become um, perhaps more dangerous than rewarding? It's a great question. I think it's to do with when it ceases to, when it cuts you off from your own humanity, when you become so fascinated by the impersonality and the anonymity of the inactive state that you're no longer able to make any kind of emotional contact with another or even really with yourself. And, you know, to go to one more literary figure, I mean, the, the, phrase, the, the term burnout actually may have first come into wide circulation through a novel by Graham Greene called The Burnt Out Case, which is about a celebrated uh, Belgian architect who um, has led this very successful worldly life and decides 
at the end of it that he wants to go to actually a fictive African, West African leper colony and simply design their sanatoria. And he decides that he's going to dedicate himself to the monastic work of helping this colony and, and avoid all human entanglements. And of course, he can't. But what he wants is this, I mean, leprosy and the, the kind of the stump of the, of the leper's limb, the, the smooth, nerveless stump of the leper's limb becomes his metaphor for the state of mind that he wants to be in. He wants to be really dead to emotion. You could say fortunately or unfortunately, because it doesn't lead anywhere very good. But uh, Query sort of can't avoid loving again, can't involve can't avoid involvement in 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 interpersonal life and um but but i i think it's that sort of impulse to really say no to the world to use the interior retreat as a kind of angry renunciation um of of others that that's when i think it starts to become dangerous where um you can sort of swallow yourself up in in being. Well, Josh, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, and I I, I wonder if as we begin to close today, thinking about inactivity and burnout, if there's any any last thoughts you would leave us with here um, from your writings or your your research. I guess the thing that we 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 maybe haven't touched on so much is the. Um, the pleasures of daydreaming and the ways that I notice um, daydreaming gets educated out of the child. When kids stare out of the window in the classroom, well, I'll tell you a, a funny anecdote. Um, I, I, I did a, a reading at a literary festival in London when, when Not Working came out and um, I talked about this. I talked about the importance of daydreaming for a child. Um, and a, a, a lady put her hand up and got up and said, well, I think what you're saying is nonsense. As a teacher, if I find a child staring out of the window and daydreaming and not listening, I wrap the stick on the table and tell them to snap out of it and pay attention. <laughs> so um, I didn't really know what to say to that at the time. Um, but... I think there is something about that lady's attitude that has become the governing mood of the time, really. And that intolerance for daydreaming in children is something we really should watch. Because if we turn our children into efficient, functional machines of activity, we're actually going to lose the again, this is paradoxical, the creativity that, that fuels development and change. Um, we will fit them up to, you know, do good jobs, but we won't necessarily f sort of get them to change the world. Fortunately, I think kids have enough of their own resources to ignore um, the likes of that lady. <laughs> but I do think it's it's important, you know, that, that there is, I think, a lot to think about here in relation to the way we think about child rearing um, and about 
education um, that we we should educate kids to have curiosity about states of being as well as states of doing. I've been speaking with Josh Cohen, author of a number of books, including Not Working, Why We Have to Stop. I, I've enjoyed the many dimensions of our conversation and where it's taken us today. Josh, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Well, that's all we got for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And as we wrap up the year, we have a goal of trying to get to 150 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. We know we have tens of thousands of listeners out there, and not everybody has written in yet. So if you're listening right now and you have a moment, please give us a rating, a review. Let us know which shows you've been enjoying, maybe some you'd like to hear on Life Examined. It means a lot for us to be able to spread the show to a new audience and keep this show going into the future. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see you soon.